Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show, session 17. Today I have for you another great topic, and uh, this time on wildfire science. We are going to discuss some outstanding ideas about how to deal and manage the wildfires. We're going to discuss an outstanding PhD project within My Areas Kodos Kakiri ITN Action, and we will discuss it with an outstanding woman leader in fire science, Dr. Katalina Stuf from Wageningen University. The project in question is PyroLife, learning to live with fire, and it's a multidisciplinary project with a short aim to turn the paradigm in wildfire from fire resistance to fire resilience. It's quite an ambitious goal, but it seems that the project is on a good way to actually deal with that. The project is training 15 bright people who are going to get their PhDs in topics ranging from pyrogeography, managing landscapes, fundamental combustion, simulations, modeling to communication and spreading the knowledge. Yeah. So it's a huge multidisciplinary endeavor uh, created together by 10 leading institutions from seven countries. That's led by Wageningen University, Dr. Katalina Stuf, which I've mentioned, and she's my today's guest. And I'm also very proud that ITB is also a small participant of this project, and we're going to host one of the PhD students in her secondment at ITB next year. Very looking forward to that. Anyway, today you're going to learn a lot about managing fires, why the current paradigm of fire suppression, fire resistance is maybe not the answer that we need to manage the modern challenges related to wildfires and how by improving our knowledge, but also by improving our risk communication, we can create a, a little safer world. So without further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Today I'm here with Kathleen Stuf, Dr. Fire Lady. Nice to have you here, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kathleen is a scientist, just a lot of things on our earth, soil, water, and now fire. <laughs> and she's the leader of a very exciting project called the PyroLive, which is an ITN Marie Curie network. What is it? 14 PhD students? 15. 15 PhD students. That's amazing. There's a whole new generation of PhD students in fire science, which we're going to discuss in very depth in here. But first, Fire Lady, what made you pursue this goal of PyroLife, this multidisciplinary approach to learning how to live with fire? Yeah, so I really love, I'm really interested in connections between fields and, and between people. And Basically, the idea for Paralife, the very seed of that was during my PhD. I was doing my PhD in the Netherlands, both fieldwork in Portugal, and I was working with the Portuguese firefighters and fire lighters. So the people doing the prescribed burns and I joined them into the field and I was measuring soil temperatures during their fires and talking to them about the challenges they had. And another thing I did was my fieldwork area was across the valley from a very small village. And every time I drove through the village, I, I, I stopped to chat with the people in, in the beginning in my very mm. poor Portuguese. And, and I learned Portuguese on the way. 
And so I was having these discussions with the with both the villagers and we were very knowledgeable and with the, the, the stakeholders in the field who were also incredibly knowledgeable. And they were teaching me about the landscape. They were teaching me about fire. At the same time I was learning about fire, I, I saw that in my own country in the Netherlands, we were having fires that I was not aware of. And I also saw that the way that we dealt with fire was very different from how the Portuguese deal with fire and that the knowledge of landscape fires in a country like the Netherlands is uh, could be much improved. Okay. At the same time, in the Netherlands, of course, we're experts at living with water. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of different people. And for instance, Eduard Platt from the Catalan Forestry Center, CTFC, he mentioned that, Catalina, the way you work with water, but especially that bottom-up approach that you involve the people on the ground, the villagers who live in a floodplain, the stakeholder participation, that is really new. And we don't do that with fire. So okay. it was those conversations with these various people and the comparison between the Netherlands and Portugal that gave me the ideas of, okay, if If we work together across disciplines, across countries, across fields and between academia and practice, I was convinced that we could tackle some really challenging things. Wow, that's a brilliant approach to walk down, gather knowledge from people who are dealing with fires for ages. And this, and at the same time, these are the people you have to convince how to deal with fire. Because if you fail to educate people living at the world wild and urban inter interface, for example, No matter how many air tankers you're going to buy, it's not going to solve the, the fire issue. Absolutely. So uh, like we in the Netherlands live with water and we looked at, we have programs in which we looked at, okay, where can we allow places to flood and where do we need to protect places where people live, where there is very important infrastructure. And the analogy I always use in my science communications is that, is that We don't deal with floods by every time mopping up. Yes. And, and, yeah, really mopping up. We deal with floods by managing the landscape, by creating a landscape that is such that we are aware of the risks and we plan the risks uh, where we do tolerate them and where we don't tolerate them. And that is also, you can't always stop floods and you can't always stop fires and it's it's not desirable mm -hmm. to always stop fires so that's the idea we need to go from fire the focus on fire suppression also financially to the focus on living with fire so it's allowing fire at the times where we can control it at the places where we want to have it and it's to stop the, the the fires that happen at places where the people are most vulnerable and and at the times where the people and the values are most vulnerable. Okay, let's pop an advertisement in here. If you like what you're hearing, there's an open position in the project for a PhD student. Yeah, Caitlin, which work package is that? Oh, it's work package too, but that's that's just administration. It's a position on how to create fire resilient landscapes. So it's to look at um, what kind of landscape structures are vulnerable to fires and what kind of landscape structures are less vulnerable to fire. So we're, we're using historical fire patterns, but also So with fire behavior modeling, it's basically an, and a lot of GIS analysis and remote sensing analysis. Just look at how can you create landscapes that then landscape designers can use these base rules to then design those landscapes. Uh, that sounds like a really exciting PhD opportunity. I, I, I would take it one. I hope someone's listening will, will, would like to join this magnificent project and all of us doing this. So let's move back to the project. In the project description, 
It is said that we need to change the fire management paradigm from resistance to resilience. Yeah. yeah. So where would you start? Like, does resistance fail or how is our current approach failing us in this? Because if we succeeded, we wouldn't see the horrible fire stories in the media that we see every summer, right? I, I, I literally get the shivers now. And, and, and so when I see these images of burnt out cars, but also what we saw this summer as well, the images on social media, the videos of these raging fires coming down the hill slope mm. and approaching the people on the beaches. I have the shivers across my entire body right now. We need to manage the landscape. We need to create landscapes in which we accept the risks that are there, but we know that we have reduced the risk such that we can live with that. We need to manage the fuel. Of course, we need to absolutely combat climate change so that these really prolonged heat waves, we know that they will uh, occur more in the future. So we need to combat climate change. But in addition to that, we need to manage the landscape so that even If we have these really prolonged heat waves or dry periods in spring, when these fires occur, they are slower and the flames are, are shorter. And so the fires spread less rapidly. We also need to inform the people and we need to work on awareness of the people for fires and for changing fire regimes. It, it's on multiple fronts. We need residents to make their homes firewise. We need to have programs in which People are encouraged to to make their homes firewise, to, so to manage mm -hmm. the fuel around homes. We need to manage the fuel in in more rural areas. We need to have policies for that as well. I mean, at the moment in the Netherlands, there is, it's it's not mandatory to to consider fire risk in the management plans of neighborhoods or or, or nature areas. And also, one one group that is very vulnerable, and you see that every summer, is tourists. Because you go to a country where you don't speak the language, you don't know the way out, you don't know the communication channels, you don't have your regular preparedness, and it's you go to a place where you're not aware of the risks. So, we there, like I said, you need we need to work on multiple fronts to uh, both create a landscape in which we can handle the fires that we yeah. have and that we will have, and that the people can live with that. So the current paradigm of resistance where you would focus on one creating, let's say, a bunch of fire-safe structures and to respond to, to fires with like active firefighting whenever a fire occurs. This approach, which seems like, for, for me, it seemed reasonable, right? You make your structures fire-safe, okay, they're safe. You make a firefighters go and extinguish the fire where a fire goes up, it seems safe. When there's a high fire season... You send more firefighters, maybe you build lookout towers by a plane with a huge water tank inside mm -hmm. and then and toys, flood toys, it. To, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and so, yeah, that's no, no issue there. It seems to work. But And that's also what in the media. So in the media, yeah. you see a lot of attention for how many airplanes there are, how many yeah. helicopters, and very few media report on how many people there are actually on the ground. But we know that aerial fire suppression alone cannot stop fires. You need to have those ground mm -hmm. crews and it's just aerial support. The airplanes cannot fly when it's too windy, when it's too hot, when there's too much smoke. Uh, so there, there are a lot of conditions in which you can't even use them. Yeah. And, and also you need to have those crews on the ground to, to really extinguish those fires. I think the, the, the best example of the fact that fire suppression alone does not work is that 
There was a decades-long policy in the U.S. that every fire needed to be out by 10 a.m. the next morning. Okay. Yes, and every fire was stopped. But fire is a natural process, and fire cleans the landscape. And if you allow fire to burn frequently, you have calm fire with short flames and flames that stay on the ground because uh, it's only the, 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 the fuels, yeah, the shrubs and the grasses that get burned. But if, if you only have a fire once every 30 or 50 years, those bushes will be touching the bottom of the trees or maybe even higher mm. than that. So fires that start on the ground, they can then very easily spread to the tops and then you can't stop them anymore. So stopping fire means that you don't clean that landscape. That means that the landscape accumulates more plants, which yeah. is the fuel for a landscape fire. And the more fuel, the less controllable the fires will be. And then what we're also seeing is that fires are changing. Fires are becoming more extreme. So fires are, cha are actually creating their own weather. And we expect that will happen more in the future so with those more extreme fires, it's even more important to allow the good fire and actually a toolbox of various landscape management practices to manage the landscape, to make sure that if there is a fire, it burns in the way that we want to. Yeah. How I understand that is that if we go too far with the, the this suppression paradigm, we're basically extinguishing everything up to a moment where the fire is so big we can only sit back and watch. Yes, or, or scream or flee or perish. Yeah. People may think that we can stop fire. And yes, you may stop fire in a short run. Yeah. But in the long run, you're basically creating a really big problem for our children or our children's children. So if we hypothetically could put out the size of the fires we see today... Like if we had, uh, let's say, unlimited amount of tankers and firefighters on the ground and we could push them, put, put them out, eventually we would end up with a bigger fire that would still exceed the capabilities and that would be horribly devastating, right? It's a, a strategy that, in essence, is, is built to fail. The predominant focus on suppression is indeed ultimately doomed to fail. And it's a very complex situation because it's easy to say we need to manage the fuel, we need to allow more mm. fire in the landscape, but we also need to... But when you look at, for instance, Southern Europe, we had a, a major migration of people from the countryside to mm. the cities yeah. in, in the last century. And so the people in the countryside... They used to, that, that lived there, that did the farming, had that small village in Portugal where I started my, my firework. There were only old people living there. And many of the old farm plots were overgrown. Okay. And so we need to get people back into the landscape. And, and the way to do that is to get the young people back into the landscape. And the landscape needs to be managed. But how do you bring young people into the landscape? Would you like to live in a rural area without internet? Uh, that, the second part makes it quite tough, right? <laughs> there you go. Would you live in a rural area if there are no schools for mm. your kids to go to? Absolutely not. There you go. And and so we need internet. We need good internet. We need schools. We need good services. We need good mm. roads. And so in order to manage those fuels, we need to come up with creative ways to get people back into the landscape. And what would really help if the news media and also politicians but I think especially the journalists, if they would focus in their reporting on what was done in terms of landscape management and in terms of preparedness of the people instead of are there enough air tankers? Because yeah. if you always f focus on the air tankers, then that is what people think 
We need to stop these fires, but we need to do that by allowing the good fires to burn. Yeah, you, you've used the term the good fires for the second or third time now. And, and Sarah McAllister also used that, and I see that uh, popping a lot in the internet, and I think it's a nice thing. Show the narrative that uh, fire is not only this devastating force, or maybe it is the devastating force, but, but we can put it on a job to clean out the path to prevent a bigger fire that's waiting behind the corner. So... How is the good fire produced or when does a good fire happen? You, you had the paper on the prescribed burns in, in Mediterranean. So that, and that's probably the, the thing I should link in the show notes. Yeah, a good fire can, it depends on where you are and, and what the conditions are. So a, a good fire is, for instance, a fire that happens when the soil is wet in an ecosystem where the plants that there are are adapted to the fire, so they regenerate after the fire. And because the soil's wet, the heat doesn't go into the soil, so it doesn't kill the seeds and it doesn't kill the roots. And it doesn't consume organic matter in the soil, and it's mm -hmm. the stuff that makes the soil black and that gives the soils nutrients and, and water or makes the soil retain water. You can have that in the spring, for instance, just after the winter, the wet winter period. Okay. Um, you can have that in a controlled fire, so a prescribed fire that you do intentionally. But also if you have wildfires in uh, when the soil is wet and that burns in a way that is that belongs in that ecosystem, a fire can be good. A fire can be bad if it goes much more intense than that ecosystem can handle, or if it burns close to a place, close to where the people are, and if it burns in a way that it's faster than what people can control. Okay. So a good fire for the ecosystem can still be bad for the people if it, if it threatens important values or uh, roads or groundwater resources or surface water resources or... But the, 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 there is seasonality in that and there is weather adjustment in that. So mm -hmm. you would not plan prescribed fires if you're about to hit the biggest heat wave uh, in, in ages. And probably not. But in Australia, for instance, there are seeds in the ground that need fire to regenerate. Okay. And some seeds also need smoke to regenerate. So in those conditions... Fires may also be done in, when the soils are drier or when the environment is drier because they want to attain that objective of, of restarting those seeds. So, that, so it's important to understand the ecosystem that you're burning in to know what time of year, and especially because our seasons are changing now with climate change, but in what conditions, in what climate conditions and fuel conditions, you can do a good fire or that you can let a wildfire burn because you're like, okay, it would be good if this if this continues and then we stop it over there because okay. it's burning in a way that actually it's beneficial and, and you clean the landscape in that way. So that's also where the difference is between landscape fires and urban fires. Um, but you're an urban fire uh, <laughs> expert, so please correct me if, if you see this differently. But I would I get the impression that from an urban fire perspective, all fire is bad. But mm. from a landscape fire perspective, a fire can actually be really useful. Yeah, in our perspective, the the fire is like a threat. It's it's like an earthquake or a hurricane. It's it's this external action that uh, affects your people and and uh, the building and the people in it. With the difference that the fire will happen. 
And that, that's how we try to manage that in the built uh, environment world. You assume that the fire will happen in your building and just make it prepared for that fire. And you also assume that there will be a fire of a specific size. Uh, let it be the um, design fire size in megawatts. You say, okay, this is an office. Office will be five megawatts. Or you design that for certain exposure conditions like the the, the damn ISO standard time temperature curve, which says that okay, it will the temperature at your surface of your structural elements will be this. Of course, it's it it can go deeper. You can do it better. But here you're just doing a, a better job on either quantifying the possible threat and uh, designing your your building to survive that, or maybe in a way limiting the probability of the fire. But still, the fire will occur and just deal with that. And you're saying it's an extreme threat. And in a landscape, it's not necessarily extreme. It's just it can become extreme if we always stop it. Okay, yeah. In a build, in a house, you don't say, let's burn the kitchen every now and then so the house, so the house doesn't burn down. Um, but in the landscape, we do say, no, let's burn the shrubs every now and then so the whole forest doesn't burn. I also see, you mentioned um, the population of the villages or the countryside. You've asked me if I was willing to go there. And uh, yeah, if their infrastructure was there, it probably would be worth it. I mean, there's a, there is a trend to go countryside, right? But Especially now with the pandemic, that yeah. teleworking is much more common. It, it, it will become more attractive, yeah, if there's internet. The process makes, the, the let's say, the countryside lose their indigenous inhabitants who knew how to deal with fire and learned you how to deal with it in Portugal and you populated with uh, city rats like me <laughs> who who would think we need to, to get more money for an air tanker for our village to protect us. And that's a challenge you already see now. This also happens in California and in Australia as well. We see people from the city moving into the countryside that did not grow up with fire. With time, we will lose in the countryside, we will lose the knowledge, the traditional fire knowledge. So if we don't collect those lessons and mm -hmm. then share them with younger generations, that knowledge will be lost. So you're absolutely right. Like, we we don't get there by just moving city people into the countryside. We also need to make sure that those new people involved in the landscape and that lessons about living with fire are shared with these newcomers. The lessons that have been learned over generations are, are kept and kept on being applied. Because you saw in Greece, I mean, mm -hmm. in Greece, they didn't have enough air tankers to fight all the fires. With an urban fire, you don't have a fire in all the main cities, for instance, in a country. That can happen, but then it's very intentional, probably. But in terms of a landscape fire, if it's dry and windy here, just in a, a natural park north of us, it's also dry and windy in the southern part of the country. It's also dry and windy in, in the eastern part. And so f landscape fire is something, is a risk that... You can have multiple fires at the same time on the same day. Yeah. So you, we, we cannot rely on the fire service to, to always come and save us. In built environment, it's also, in a way, a product of how we define the regulations and, and the law. In Poland, for example, many parts of the regulation, the building code, are related to what actually the firefighters can manage. Like uh, One <laughs> good example is the size of the fire compartment you can have. And that's directly related to the ability of the fire brigade to, to have enough people, water and equipment to contain the fire of this size. So you're not really allowed to build a one million square meter building, mm -hmm. even if you liked, 
because if this building is on fire, it will be impossible to manage the fire. So you either have to build up additional safety features in the building or you're not allowed to build that. And we don't have a building code for nature areas. At least in, in these countries like the Netherlands, where fire is a relatively new risk, we don't have those building codes for the landscape. And we need to have those. Yeah, that's right. And even if how to quantify what are the capabilities of your fire brigade, if, as you said, the threat may come and at multiple locations. So if a fire is able to, I don't know, control a 100 hectare fire, does it mean they can handle 250 hectare fires? No, not really, because it's a completely different animal to, to battle on multiple fronts. I really like this discussion now that we're having about the, the parallels and the differences between urban fires and, and landscape fires, because that is also... so. In the Netherlands, our, our landscape fires are being handled by the fire service that mostly does urban fires. Mm -hmm. So, And you see that across more temperate regions that uh, we don't have a dedicated fire service for the okay. landscape fires. So landscape fires are being managed or actually fought from an urban fire perspective. And again, you have in the media also about the fires in the Mediterranean, it's always about air, air tankers. So you see a lot of yeah. newly, <laughs> relatively newly fire prone countries thinking we need to buy air tankers. And, but once again, we need to manage the landscape and we need to teach the fire service how to manage the fire from the ground. I mean, obviously for you, it's a horrible question. But if I ask a listener to imagine a scene from a wildfire, the first thing that comes to your eyes when you close your eyes, right? The, the, the thing that you pop in your mind is, is probably an air tanker dropping water on, on a forest. Yeah, because that's the, that is the media image that is engraved in our uh, minds. Yeah. I would love I would love to have a Lego set of fire lighter so a prescribed fire person can actually conducting the fire and and I would actually love to challenge Lego to develop a Lego set that is about putting good fire on the ground and but you mentioned it's the it's the vision it's a standard vision that people yeah. have is this helicopter or airplane dumping water and it's even so strong that vi that vision that there was a, a a report from the European Commission about land-based fire prevention and the communication department of the European Commission put on the front of that prevention report they put a helicopter dumping water that's not prevention <laughs> so it's so um ingrained in people's mindsets and so we need to we, we need to change that narrative and we need to change that image of that we need to have aerial fire suppression i was commissioned to do an investigation into mm -hmm. uh, a large fire that we had here in the netherlands uh last year in a dernis appeal and in the interviews with the fire service and the land managers and all the different stakeholders that were involved in the fire, I also looked at parallels between urban firefighting and, and mm -hmm. landscape firefighting. And we can really learn a lot from, I, I think, the, the best way to to train people in newly fire-prone countries to, to live with landscape fires is to look at parallels of things they know. So in terms of the fire service... In the Netherlands, there's a instruction for urban fires that when you arrive at the fire, you assess the thing and you consider, is it safe to go into the building or not? Mm -hmm. If it's not safe to go in, you, you fight the fire from outside the building. 
And in that fire in Adurnus Appeal, uh, you saw there were people that wanted to approach the flames. They wanted to go directly to the flames, which caused a very challenging and, and very risky situations that international colleagues, when they reviewed my report, they were shocked when they read that. They were like, ooh, that's, that's, that's very dangerous. At the same time, these fire fighters also indicated it felt like they were doing nothing when they were waiting the fire to approach mm. them on the sides of the nature area. And the important thing is then to teach that, to train them that doing not, waiting is not, consciously waiting is not doing nothing. Mm. It's a conscious approach to and to safely manage the fire because you don't put people in a building that is not safe to go into during a fire and mm -hmm. it's important that we don't do that either with landscape fire i've done my masters in fire safety engineering in poland where we share the same course with uh, fire officers so we are exposed to many let's say subjects or topics or trainings that uh, are, are meant for fire officers. And we, we had this subject of uh, fire, forest fire management, stuff like that. What it did focus on was not necessarily the fuel management, as you mentioned, to control the landscape and everything. It focused on building uh, strips within the forests. Like you have a road that goes through a forest, you have to control the fuel like 30 meters left, 30 meters right. That was the, the goal. Mm, or the strips yeah. and along the train road. Strips when the fire meets urban areas. Like and there, there, That was the places that we were taught to manage the fuel, to cut the shrubs, to clean the soil, to maintain that the roads are passable. And when we entered the, the tactics, it usually focused on how to secure these this areas we've Order, created yeah. with management, you know, to make sure that the fire doesn't jump from one sector to another. So I, I think it's maybe not the, the perfect way, but already something, an, an improvement over just jumping into the middle of, of a fire and chase it with a shovel. That corridor approach, I, I also see that used here in the Netherlands. But when you have a fire service that is used to using big trucks to drive into the area, you cannot do that in all the landscapes. Mm. And this particular fire was in a peat bog. And okay. peat is very soggy. So there was a lot of discussion about whether there were sufficient roads for the fire service to go into the area. Mm -hmm. But even if there had been more roads or more of those corridors, then you still cannot put trucks in there all the time driving back and forth because those roads will not would not have enough bearing capacity for those big trucks. Mm -hmm. So in in countries like the Netherlands where fire is being managed from an urban fire perspective, we need to make the shift to to other techniques to getting used to waiting for the fire to approach the sides of the nature area. It's to look at the, the weather forecast and identify also in, in time what the times are that the fire will most likely be able to be suppressed. It's using ground approaches. So walking in or walking into the area only when it's safe, but also making very small fire breaks with hand crews instead of using the big fire trucks to put water everywhere. We don't necessarily need water to stop fires, mm -hmm. but we do need dedicated training so that people can practice and can learn about these methods and practice with these methods so they can apply them safely. And that's the, the change we need. 
when we then we started talking about pyro life and now we're talking about fire suppression in newly fire prone countries the reason why there's a link is yep. so we use the fire knowledge from mediterranean areas and we apply that to to northwestern europe at the same time it's about using knowledge from different disciplines so in this case we talk about using knowledge from urban fires and making a parallel with landscape fires in Paralife, we also use knowledge from water management uh, and stakeholder participation. We use that and apply that to fire. So that's it's about these cross-disciplinary mm. approaches. It's about learning from different disciplines and different people. That is the parallel between these things. And the motivation behind Paralife is we need to deal with the challenge of changing fire regimes. And we need to move from resisting fire to living with fire. And if we want to do that, we need to have experts who are not just good in their own field, but also people that are interested and able to communicate with people from other fields. So we can have disciplinary experts that also know a little bit about other fields. So all those people together, in our case, all those 15 PhD candidates together can sit together and jointly move forward with this, with ways how to promote living with fire. I, I think it's much more than just 15 uh, oh, students. Yes. It's a huge, huge group of people involved. Behind every student, there's like three or four people who participate in the project. And it's probably a hundred people community now, where, which... Uh, is booming. It's creating a lot of useful outcomes because you're doing webinars. Uh, there are papers uh, in writing. There will be more papers towards the end of the project. You're doing communications. Courses. We're organizing PhD courses as well. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Fantastic. And in the description, uh, you've also used a sentence to transfer the knowledge from south to north. And I guess that's what you meant about the new fire-prone countries. You've, you've also reflected that the Many of these uh, solutions or these problems were invented in, let's say, Mediterranean region, which is historically more prone to fire or had to deal with fire for a longer time. But not long ago, we had these horrible fires in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And that's not very far south, to be honest. No. How do you want to learn the, the northern countries? I don't know if you consider yourself north enough <laughs> to be a northern country. Uh, let's say the I, I consider us northwest or so. Northwestern yeah, country. Yeah. yeah. So, so how to get how to transfer the best things from south to north, and do the people in north want them? Oh, that's a nice question. So the first part of your question: how to translate that knowledge is. Through the collaborations that we have, mm -hmm. we use insights about fire, about fire science, and we look at the fire regime in Northwestern Europe. We look mm -hmm. at the perception of fire risk. We look at policies. And so there's in, both in environmental science, engineering, and in social science, we're, we're making these parallels. So it's one of the things is that we're investigating the current situation and those studies that come out, they for instance, promote uh, or propose things to consider in in creating policies mm -hmm. or they create better understanding of fire behavior that we have or about the impacts on, on the soils and the water. In terms of whether people in the North want them, there is still only a small part of people that realize that we have fires. Okay. And of course, when there's a, a, a bigger fire, people see it in the media, but few people 
will know that in 2018, for instance, we had 949 fires in the Netherlands. And it's also because when you look at the EFIS satellite, you only see three fires for 2018. So our fires are really small, but our country is also very densely populated. So the, the challenges are quite different in like ne Netherlands than, for example, in rural Spain or rural Portugal. Yeah, yeah we had a 25 hectare fire in, in 2018 that was a, a big threat for, for a, a campsite, for instance. That was, that was, mm -hmm. And I know of very small fires in the UK that were a, a big threat as well. So when you have a lot of people, and especially also when the awareness for landscape fires is low, And when the preparedness is mostly focused on urban methods, then you don't need to have a, a, a thousand hectare fire to have a, a, a big risk. A, a quote from nuclear fire prevention is uh, like in nuclear facilities is that not every big fire is dangerous, not every dangerous fire is big. And that's, yeah. that's mm. something that really that touches on top of that. Uh, in PyroLife, you've structured this whole, let's say, mission to learn the best practices, figure out if they work for the South, transfer them to the North, and do all this inter interdisciplinary research into three main groups, risk quantification, risk reduction, and uh, risk communication. Are they equally important to you, quantifying reduction communication? H how do you feel about them? Because in, in project, it's quite evenly spread, and I wondered if, it's, if you put the same emphasis on each of them or... We need we need everything, yeah. and especially in these newly fire prone countries, we need we need to have more knowledge of the fires themselves, of the impact of the fires, not just the biophysical impact, mm. but also the social impact. We need to have information on the awareness and how to communicate the risk. So it it, it is about integrated fire management. So yeah. so it, we focus on all the different parts of the integrated fire management. And so really one part cannot do without the other. And, mm -hmm. and that's not just in, in the temperate regions, but also in the Mediterranean regions. I, I really love how the risk communication was put in there because in from this 30-some minutes into the chat, it's obvious, yeah? But uh, if I was exposed to just the slogans before I've met you or learned about PyroLive, I would like communication. It's like uh, you're going to talk to fire. That's not really helpful. But now, as, as we've mentioned, that you have these new people in the um, countryside, you have the policymakers who see fire truck in or, or air tanker in their head when thinking about solutions. This, even if you do the best science and you do the best solutions, you still have to sell them to make them worth your time researching, right? Yeah, but but also we need to be able to communicate the the, the right messages to different types of people. So we need to communicate to the policymakers. Listen, spending 55 million euros on air tankers, <laughs> I would say spend that money on prevention. Yeah. Um, spend that money on landscape management, on a good public information campaign. So if you spend money on prevention, on, on, on living with fire, your money will go much longer way than if you only spend it on air tankers. If you prepare well for the fire, it's cheaper than mopping up, well, mopping up the flood or suppressing the fire. And so we need to communicate that to the policymakers who make the decisions. We need to communicate that also to the people living in the landscape and in the villages, what they can do themselves to reduce the risk around their homes, what to do in case a fire occurs. And then we need to tailor that to 
various vulnerable groups because the message you share with uh, a young person, a teenager who's uh, with their phone is different from the message you share with, with older people who, who may be less mobile or, or tourists who, who don't speak your language. Sorry for asking this, but, but I have to. It must be like really painful when you hear the numbers or, or the summarized cost of a mega fire. Like it's not even in millions anymore. We're talking about fires that literally consume gross domestic product of a small country in one single event. And then you confront it with funding available, fire science or, or management or prevention. Yeah. You have obtained the most impressive grant in, in these terms, and that's a few million euros compared to a single fire that could have costed 20 billions So mm -hmm. you could fund not 15, but a whole village of, of PhD students thinking about that. And we're talking about money now. But then in addition to that, we have the lives that are lost and the lives yeah. that are changed because of those devastating fires. We often say it's to manage the fuel, stupid, but it's more challenging than that. Yeah. We have this prevention paradox that we also have with COVID. If you... And, 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 and I get to diversity now because prevention is basically stepping up to make mm. sure that something devastating doesn't happen. Um, but when something devastating does happen, the person who saves us or the air tanker is always yeah. going to be the hero. In prevention, the hero is the person who makes the social connections, who, who foresees problems before they arise. And who, through the connections you make, you basically prevent something from happening, or you reduce the impact of when it does happen. And those people are not considered the heroes. So one of the projects in Paralife, uh, Hugo Lambrecht is working on, is how to make prevention enticing. Okay. Um, and the reason I get to diversity is because fire science, but also fire suppression, the fire service, is very masculine. It's very much about the biggest trucks, the biggest air tankers. Mm. It's very much about suppression. Peter Moore from FAO once said, if we had diversity in fire 40 years ago, we wouldn't have the challenges that we have now. You mentioned the, the risk quantification, risk uh, reduction, risk communication, but we also have four axes of diversity. And we discussed mm. The other three already, it's the cross-geography, it's mm -hmm. the cross-risk or cross-discipline, and we it's the intersectoral approach, so linking academia and practice. Yeah. And the fourth one is social diversity, because if you want to do this integrated fire management, and if you want to move to living with fire, we need to hear all voices. It, it's not just the, the voices that shout about the fire suppression, about the air tankers that we that we should hear, but we should also hear the other approaches. And actually, this preventative approach is more feminine than the masculine approach mm -hmm. of suppression. So we need to have more women involved in fire. We also need to have people from various different cultures involved in fire. Um, We need to have rural people. We need to have city people. We need to have old people. We need to have young people involved. So it's about social diversity as well. It's about a safe working climate. It's about attracting diverse people to, to work in this area. And it's about keeping those people in our field to work in fire. Because often for minorities, it's much more challenging to work than, than if you're part of a majority. So yeah. that's also what we're, what we're trying to bring to FIRE. I, I wonder if a career path of a pyro manager exists. And if not, we should create one. You know, a person that's responsible for 
managing these cross-sector approaches in a certain region to make sure it clicks, yeah, right? I like that. So the thought behind Paralife, we discussed the, 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 the reason we need integrated fire management, but the reason we need to train people in a different way is because the standard academic approach and the standard approach in schools is to focus on single disciplines. And also the way that scientific excellence is considered is focused on single disciplines. It's about people that are very strong in fundamental science, focused on one thing, but we need to redefine scientific excellence. We need also to consider the societal impact of research. We need to consider the excellence of science communication. Mm -hmm. So moving away from considering papers and funding to be scientific excellence, but also this broader impact. I've often said that we need more impact, less factors. I think um, you're also creating this type of science I mean, of course, it's meant for your colleagues in academia or, or researchers in other universities, but it's not focused on them. They're not the key benefactors of the science, you know. The science is not the benefactor of the science. It's the people. And much yeah. of the science today is made to, to satisfy other researchers and uh, yield citations, yield impact factors, have grants being approved and have grant yeah. funding being approved after you finish. Give proofs that you've achieved this excellence, whatever that is, right? And I strongly believe that science and my science is better when we work closely with people in the field. So with these Portuguese villagers whom, mm. who taught me a lot about fire and the landscape and the changing climate, with stakeholders in the field. I know that outside of academia, there's a lot of data that is not even known to academics. And so close collaborations where where scientists listen to the challenges and, and ask for the challenges and read themselves into the challenges of people in practice can make the science better and can also make the science more relevant to those same people. And then we still need fundamental science. It's not that this change that we need only needs needs applied science. We definitely need fundamental science. But it's making these links between academia and practice. And maybe the biggest impact is indeed not the scientific paper, but it's but it's completely something else. It could be a leaflet that was handed to a million people and it, it saved the life of, of some of them. Yeah. And I, I think in the project you have a bit of everything. Like you have this fundamental science because there are people studying combustion and and fundamental fire behavior and fuel and uh, all of this, right? You have, let's say, the modelers or people who are looking into into different scales from from a building, and I'm happy to to work with one of yeah. them, who, Simona, who's gonna figure out how to make uh, houses more resilient to fires. But you also have people looking into a bigger view, like. Uh, city landscape, like the, the whole regional mm-hmm. fire management or fire problems. And then you have the, the communicators, the people who are meant to figure out how to get the message done, how to get the message translated into language that people can understand, yep. how to figure out the, the most efficient way of communicating information gained from the south to the north, for example. You can go to a conference in Sweden and tell them all all you know about how eucalyptus plants burn. And it's going to be fascinating, but not really very useful in in there. Yeah. So uh, that's a challenge because you have to take this local ecosystem into the equation. And that's also something that 
I really like emerging over this talk that this mm. fire and fire management is so closely bounded with the ecosystem, with the nature that surrounds it. And the people, the ecosystem, and the, people, the nature, and the people. And the people. Yeah. Yeah, and the people. Because you consider fire as a part of this of this system, not as an external, like we do in buildings. You don't treat yeah. it as, it's not this earthquake that's going to shatter it. It's a part of it. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, it can stay there, just make it in its place, not yeah. too big. And, uh, and and what is really nice about Paralife is, uh, and, and we, we talked about fundamental science and applied science. You mentioned the diversity of, of the topics that we have. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's it's about people doing the type of work that they love. And some people are more interested in fundamental mm -hmm. science, some more in applied science. We also have brilliant artists in the yeah. project. And, and that also links me to a master's course I'll be teaching uh, for the mm -hmm. first time. I, I had it approved by, by the university nice. uh, the past year and I'm, I'm teaching Now it. that you got the most prestigious ITN grant, you've proved that you can handle a master's <laughs> course. Congratulations, <laughs> Kathleen. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it did help in, in setting up this master's course, course because we're building upon the courses that we teach in prior life. So in this course, it's called chirogeography. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll teach it at, at my University of University, we focus on the biophysical drivers and impacts, but also on the social drivers and impacts mm -hmm. of fire. And we also make the link between art and science. And as a final project, the, the students will, it's basically a really open exercise where they can create something on an aspect about fire. So it, they can make a video, they can mm. make a drawing, or they can do a dance, like dance your PhD, but then about the, the about fire, or they can make information material, any way to process the knowledge that they've gained to communicate that to people, so to the broader public to learn about fire. And of course, didactically, that's a way for the students to, to process the knowledge and apply the knowledge they have to communicate that. And yeah, this, this link between art and science or more creative approaches in science. I, I think you created a little bit more than you, than you think with that because it's not just releasing the art spirit or, or allowing people to do what they love, but you also, in a way, make them communicate in the form that resonates with them the best. And if it resonates mm. with them and their young students, it's very likely to resonate with their, their colleagues, their peers, the people from their generation. And it's also something that, you know, it was missed, let's say, 30, 40 years ago without diversity in fire, that the communication was like either scolding, like, I will tell you now what to do and listen up to this lecture. This is what you shall do. Or it was difficult to understand or impossible to understand in forms of very technical or very scientific papers. And this is not a mm. communication that will resonate with people that you want to reach, right? Or well, not in, in fact, that is the message of a very short letter that I published in, in Nature with David Bowman, in which we argue that diversity is needed to fight fires because the, the communities we work in and, mm. and the real world, that's not just men. That's not just white men. We have men and women and, and other genders, and we have um, people from various different cultures. What what I hope for the future is that that by focusing on this diversity is we can attract more diverse people to work in our field, doing the things they love so that the fire community that works on these topics can more reflect the communities that, mm -hmm. that benefit from our work. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. This this way I I presented that this old ways of communication. That's not communication. That's broadcasting. And what you're trying to get is two way feedback, like connection with the listener, because then you know they they've listened, right? Yeah, and and what is important in there is that. I don't want everybody to be an expert in communication. It's fine if somebody mm -hmm. does my master's course and thinks of this last exercise that, okay, I've done this now. I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> fine. And it's also in prior lives. There's parts that people may not be interested in, mm -hmm. but by doing them once and especially by all these diverse people receiving the same kind of training, we create a common basis, common knowledge and a language that allows the people that in prior life, but also in our master's course to communicate with each other across the different fields. Okay. So by exposing them to the diverse array of experiences, you're preparing them for, for communicate because they will understand the needs of the other side better. That's, yeah. that's nice. That's, that, that, that sounds like a reasonably good approach. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of this approach, of this project of, you know, changing this paradigm because one planet we have and it's kind of burning so it would be great to uh, to save it and every year you see these fires that should that should not happen like you should yeah. not have the, the i don't know 18 out of 20 biggest fires in history that happened yeah. in the last 10 or 20 years right yeah. it's, yeah. it's and, and you cannot just blame that on on, on global warming If we only blame it on global warming, then you miss the part that we can actually manage yeah. on the short term, and that's to manage the fuel. You, you seem to, to have a solution, or at least you seem to have a good idea what the solution could look like. And now you're having 15 brilliant people to find that solution, right? That's... The challenging is, I'm not the first one to say yeah. that we need to live with fire. And actually, indigenous peoples have lived with fire way before we... I, I know it's a part of, of pyro life. This indigenous knowledge that exists, that works, and why is it's not there as the, the, the first thing to, that comes to your mind to, when dealing with fire? What I've learned that from working with indigenous peoples is that they, indigenous knowledge is often ignored in mm -hmm. Western countries. We see that in Australia, we see that across the US and Canada, and Ignoring indigenous, indigenous knowledge, we that white people can say, oh, we invented this. Well, we didn't invent this because we were absolutely not first to, to use fire in the landscape. And so I, I think the ignorance of indigenous knowledge in fire reflects a broader pattern of ignoring indigenous cultures. So I think as a fire community, mm -hmm. we could definitely do better in investing in this collaboration with indigenous peoples. Okay, actually, you know what? That's brilliant. <laughs> There is a PhD student on this subject in, in part of life, right? Um, Kathleen Eitevel will do a secondment with the Research Institute Zion in New Zealand, and she will work with Maori to see how they do living with fire and also see how Zion collaborates mm. with the Maori. Let's do this as a full oh, episode yeah. to, to give it the justice. Okay, cool. um, you know what? I think let's go back to wrapping up because we're all, yeah. all, all already all over the My time. So all these aspects of pyro life, they're really interesting and important. And it's just a huge, huge topic. So where should I redirect a person to learn more about pyro life? There's obviously the web page. So we have the pyro life web page on which we have this job vacancy for oh, yeah. our, our fire resilient landscape 
PhD project deadline 12 September. We also are active on Twitter and Instagram and we yeah. have a YouTube channel. And then uh, on the broader things, uh, the master's course that's coming up, pyrogeography, mm-hmm. I don't, there, it's listed on the Wageningen University course guide. So that will run in January. And then we also have a job vacancy coming up about fire social sciences and, and developing training for a postdoc researcher or a researcher without a PhD degree. That's fine as well. And so that deadline is on September 19th. So so yeah. we have a few things coming up and for which I just put in plugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, he- hearing this discussion, it seems your work ethic and the places where you put the pressure and focus on are really nice for someone as a student to work with you. So I guess I guess this was a good advertisement. Let's hope someone someone changes their life by by working with with PyroLife or with you or going to the PyroGeography course. Thanks. Okay, K- Kathleen, that was that was really great, really insightful, and there's so much more to come out of the PyroLife project. I really like. It sucks with the pandemic that mm. kind of ruined the experience, but. As I see that as the project moves on, there will be more momentum of, of these pieces, you know, locking together and creating the even more exciting output than, than they have so far. So yeah, I, because I, I really look forward to the moment that we can bring people together. I mean, our, our PhD candidates started two weeks after the pandemic yeah. hit Europe. So we've never been able to all meet yet. And I really do think that this these collaborations across disciplines and countries and people that that really thrives when people can just get together and hang out and chat and and so of course talking like giving the formal presentations in conferences are, are nice but i i think the magic happens in the informal interactions it's about it, it's basically about fire friends hanging out and then that's so inspirational just to to chat with people and you get brilliant ideas in the middle of the night and i really look forward to that and uh, with this nice accent let, let's wrap it up thank you so much for joining me in here and all the best with the PyroLife project and your other exciting projects you have and changing the fire science and management into something better thanks, thanks a, lot. a lot yeah you too yeah so did you like it I really thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. It's kind of mind-boggling and eye-opening to think that our current paradigm of how we deal with wildfires, this kind of suppression mentality where all we need to do is extinguish fires, how, how this approach is kind of failing us. And we see that in the news every now and then. And this approach to emphasize the landscape management, these good practices in making the land safe for fire, limiting the risk, managing the risk, actually, it seems very complementary to the current suppression uh, way of thinking. And it seems that uh, some sort of a combination of both worlds would actually lead to a much safer world that, that we are in. So I'm really happy that that Katlina did try her chances with this huge PyroLife grant. And trust me, obtaining this ITN Mariskudos Kakiri action is is a really, really huge achievement. And it's very difficult. And there's such a competition for these grants. And she did it. She tried her chances. She's built a fantastic group of leading institutions. She made them think together, work out an outline of a project. 
come up with with this fantastic interdisciplinary endeavor to connect risk quantification, reduction, and communication into one huge complementary package. And now, with uh, some huge successes, despite the COVID situation, she's leading a new generation of young fire leaders to the world of fire science. But the Pyro Life is not just the students. It's also this huge collaboration of all the institutions, universities, institutes, private companies around the world that participate in training these young leaders but also participate in exchanging information, knowledge, organizing workshops that you can attend. So the impact of this project will be much, much beyond just the PhDs awarded after the grant or the papers published from it. So yeah, I would strongly recommend keeping an eye on the PyroLife project. If you are listening to this episode at its premiere, it's probably worth to check the open positions at PyroLife. There's one PhD uh, position open for landscape management that Catalina has talked about in the chat. There's also some master courses that she's organizing. There's a postdoc position in her group. So a lot of opportunities to, to work with this fantastic group of people. And if you are from the future, then you probably should check out what new outcomes came out of the PyroLife project, because I am sure that a lot of great outcomes will be uh, reaching the sunlight and you will hear more and more about this project. So, yeah, I hope you really enjoyed this uh, chat. For the next week, we're going to go back a bit to the buildings. Actually, we're going to discuss a bit of what the performance-based fire safety engineering is. So you're probably going to look forward to that one because it's something that I've looked for a long time and really enjoyed touching this great subject. So yeah, another week packed with a fire science adventure. Hope you liked it. See you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.